0: It's Tuesday, March the 16th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your moderator today. Being a moderator means I get to introduce you to the stars of the show. Let's get right to them. The Goodfellows, as we call them. Goodfellows, meaning they're wise guys, but wise guys solely in the academic meaning of the term. Begins with John Cochran. John is an economist and John is the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Hey, John, how are you today? That's uh, great. Good to be here. Our second good fellow joining us, I think, from his Southern California undisclosed location is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is the Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is also the author of the best selling book, Battlegrounds A Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill. Great to be with you, John Neal, and our special guest. Our third good fellow joining us, well, close to his wilderness outpost. He has a dramatic backdrop today uh, for reasons I don't think we'll go into. And that would be Neil Ferguson. Neil is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. He's also a renowned author and historian, and he has a book coming out the first week of May called Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. As it's coming out soon, that means you can pre order it right now on Amazon. Hello,
1: Neil. Hello, Bill. Um, I'm happy to reveal why I'm in front of this mysterious red curtain. Uh, no, I'm not about to. Uh appear uh, on stage uh, i'm actually in a recording studio recording the audio book of of doom and so if i sound a little horse that's because i've been reciting my own words all morning
0: well it's great to have you with us neil and gentlemen we have a very special guest today george will uh, for those of you who have not read a column in the last 50 years Uh, I will tell you briefly who George Will is. George Will writes a twice-weekly column on politics and domestic and foreign affairs for the Washington Post Writers Group, for which he's been awarded the Pulitzer Prize. His columns appear currently in over 400 newspapers in the U.S. and abroad. He's also written, he's a critically acclaimed author. He has written 15 books, with the 16th coming out in December. Most recent book being The Conservative Sensibility, released in 2019, which we're going to talk about today. On a personal note, I say this as someone who worships at all times at the altar of baseball. George Will has long been a hero of mine. This is the man who once covessed, and I quote, all I remember about my wedding day in 1967 is that the Cubs lost a doubleheader. George Wills, welcome to Good Fellows. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So, George, uh, today is March the 16th. On this day in 1751 is the birthday of James Madison, fourth president of the United States. And like you, a Princetonian, though I think Princeton was the college in New Jersey back in his day. Uh, I mentioned Madison for the obvious Princeton connection with you. I will not mention the other Princeton graduate who went on to the presidency. I do not want to elevate your blood pressure this early in the show. Uh, Feel free to talk about him at some point, if you will. But Madison George is also the father of the Constitution. Here's my question to you to start the show, George. If you were to sit down right now with James Madison and have a conversation about what is happening in Washington with this federal government that he helped set into motion, this spate of progressive legislation that at all times seems to raise questions of constitutionality and the role of government in individuals' lives, what would you tell Mr. Madison?
2: I'd tell him that his uh, model for American governments is not working in two ways. First, he thought that the three branches of government would be rivals that they would be jealous of their powers and hold each other in check. The problem is that uh, when they wrote the constitution at the end of the 1780s, they didn't realize what was about to happen in the 1790s. They neither anticipated nor desired the emergence of a party system. The fact that it emerged instantly really indicates that parties are indispensable, which I do believe, but as a result of that, a kind of tribal loyalty has now superseded institutional pride and institutional jealousy in in and thereby sort of short-circuiting the Madisonian equilibrium that he hoped would exist. The second thing that is not working as well as it should is the following. The Madisonian revolution and democratic theory was uh, that all people who would hitherto thought democracy would work and there weren't that many thought it would only work in a small face-to-face homogenous society because such a society would be without factions, which were ostensibly the enemies of of freedom. Uh, Madison turned it on his head. He had this catechism. What is the worst outcome of politics? Tyranny, what's the form of tyranny to which democracies are prey? Tyranny of the majorities. Solution, don't have stable tyrannical majorities have only shifting, unstable coalitions of factions, hence the extensive republic, which would have a saving multiplicity of factions. The problem is, once the government becomes promiscuous in intervening in society and in catering to factions, and indeed in the Franklin Roosevelt manner, creating factions for the purpose of making them dependent on government, the elderly, farmers, organized labor, all the rest, once that happens, the government becomes itself a plaything. Of, uh, of of the factions and uh, uh, what you get is is A, unseemly when it acts and often it can't act.
0: Is this fixable or are we just on a path we cannot come back from?
2: Well, it's fixable uh, in, in the following sense. If we can convince the American people to shed their romantic view of government, it may seem odd to uh, suggest that Americans have a romantic view of government, but they do in this sense. Uh, They need an immersion in public choice theory, which reduced to its essence is government is not an arbitrator among interest groups. It's the biggest interest of all. The idea of government with a, a kind of disinterested government is romantic silliness, as Professor Buchanan at the University of Virginia won a Nobel Prize for saying, approximately. So in that sense, if we can convince the American people that uh, the government is, is is itself a faction, a big, necessary, but dangerous faction, that'll be a start. Mm-hmm. I, um, I push on this question, which I think is a, g- a
3: great place to start in the center. By the way, I wanna hold up the conservative okay. sensibility and recommend it to all of our listeners. This was a fantastic read and thank you, George. Um, one of the, part of the uh, trend has been the move of power, first to the executive, then to the executive agencies. And now we we look uh, back romantically at the era when rules were actually made and promulgated with, uh, uh, with cost-benefit analysis and following the Administrative Procedures Act, rather than simply edicts uh, issued by each president, uh, sometimes um, overturning the other. And there seems to be, among our fellow citizens, a, a romantic view of democracy, um, we seem to have gone back to a very childish or simplish view that it's 51% decides everything, uh, as opposed to this complicated and beautiful constitutional architecture put together by our, our uh, we call them forefathers, I, get, I hope still, uh, but one that recognized that democracy fell apart very quickly uh, and that emphasized the rights of electoral minorities uh, to not be trampled on uh, at least too quickly. Those seem two directions of danger beyond what you just said, the concentration of power in, in the executive and in the agencies um, and and the move towards a pure 51% shove it down your throats forever uh, democracy without the, mm-hmm. the uh, structure of representative government and, and the rights of electoral minorities to, to not be trampled.
2: What you call the romantic view, and I would call the sentimental view of democracy is grows, is both cause and effect of a plebiscitary presidency. Now that the presidency is ubiquitous and the president himself is ubiquitous, partly because of modern technologies of communication. Before Twitter, there was television. Before television, there was radio. And radio was, I think, in its way, the most revolutionary of them all because it was that that made possible a a president who's infests our life and takes up residence in our brains in a way that they couldn't hitherto do. Um, So yes, I mean, until we begin to understand that we have three branches of government for a reason, I noticed that Mr. Tugerville, the new Senator from Alabama said, there are three branches of government, uh, the House, the Senate and the presidency. You know, our government wasn't set up for one group to have all three. Of, of branches of government, it wasn't set up that way, uh, or, or
0: or three branches, you know, the House, the Senate, and the and the executive.
2: Um, so th- there's a certain lack of nuance. Uh, <laughs> he is a it.
0: football coach, George.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I understand that a better football coach than a senator, I'm sure. But but it's a it's it's a it's a problem because uh, you you have uh, last uh, a few years ago a Republican chairman when the Republicans controlled the House, a Republican chairman of a very important committee said, my job is to do the president's bidding. I'm on his team. He's the captain of the team. As long as they think like that, the Madisonian equilibrium can't be restored.
1: Can I offer a hypothesis, George, that no. ultimately the historical process that we're discussing, which is a degeneration of uh, the constitutional order the founders devised, is Britain's revenge on the Revolutionary Republic. And that it's a central problem, in fact, of being an American conservative, that you're trying to find a conservative way to think about a revolutionary enterprise. The two-party system which immediately sprung into being was, of course, a British invention. uh, And uh, the kind of spoil system that accompanied it, of course, originated in Hanoverian England. Uh, In many ways, the way in which the institutions have evolved is in a British direction. Uh, And of course, even more ironically, the United States became an empire and did did, uh, the heir of the British empire by the middle of the 20th century. The question that this leaves me with is how complete the revenge will be. And I suppose watching uh, the musical Hamilton, the best part of which is the song, You'll Be Back, left, left me wondering if it all ends ultimately as classical political theory always predicted it would, that the Republic based on liberty can't be sustained and you'll get tyranny in the end one way or the other. How far do you see this as a fundamental problem of the American project that all of classical political theory predicted it would end in tyranny, perhaps via populism, and that we're probably just a short distance away from this inevitable denouement. Uh, I
2: I think we're a bit more resilient than that. I I will not dwell on the fact that presidential governance has come to Britain, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. The, The moment it came, in my judgment, was when Tony Blair took charge of the orgy of mourning for Princess Diana displacing the, the, the monarch in that case. And, and, and uh, as I see Boris Johnson govern, he governs in a presidential spirit and often with presidential effect, leaving that aside.
1: <laughs> touché, touché. The,
2: uh, populism is the problem because when a nation gets to the point that the United States is today, that is, it is incapable of educating elites who believe in the point of the nation uh, it's going to have a hard time uh, passing itself on to subsequent generations. The anti-elitism in America uh, requires someone to look the country in the eye and say that elites will always be with us, that the point of, re- of a republic is not that the people make decisions, they decide who will make decisions, and those are elites. Uh, the, t- the the challenged for democracy is to get the people to consent to worthy elites. Uh, and until we stop disparaging elites as an idea, the alternative is going to be the worship of the people. And this, uh, it's, it seems to me, is uh, gets us back to the point where, what is America about? Is America about majority rule, which is to say democracy simply understood uh, as it was not by the non-simple-minded men who Put us together, or is democracy, or is America about liberty, uh, which democracy often but hardly invariably serves, which is why we have a judiciary to supervise democracy.
4: But George, didn't didn't uh, didn't many Americans defer to elites to the point at which they became disenchanted and believed that uh, they didn't really any any longer have a say in how they were governed and. You know, I'm thinking about, in particular, the transitions in the global economy that occurred in the 90s, in the 2000s, accelerated by China's welcome, <laughs> being welcomed into the World Trade Organization, the disappointments in foreign policy associated with the unanticipated length and difficulty of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the 2008 financial crisis, lay, lay on top of that, right? A, an opioid crisis. And, and isn't it understandable, uh, that that the American population these days would be more prone to populism. That's I'd like to ask you that question. Don't the elites really need to reform themselves first before we ask the American people to defer to them again? And then this, the second point would be the question is: Do you see any any hope in the in the, the the decentralized federalized system we have? Right? It's it's become very fashionable these days to lament the fact that we don't have centralized authority. For example. Over the entire healthcare system? Uh, do you think maybe our salvation might be uh, in, in more local governance where those governments may we, the people can, ref, can force those governments to be more, more responsive to their genuine concerns about education, for example, or public services? So, so really two questions. Are, are you uh, you know, what what do the elites need to, to, to do to reform themselves, if you agree with, with that? and then uh and then do you see hope uh in in our federal system uh and reform from the bottom up i guess
2: first you use the word deference let's dwell on that for a minute what what gordon wood calls the radicalism of the american revolution was precisely that it accelerated what had already begun which is the end of a culture of deference toward uh, governing elites Uh, that was completed if you will in 1828 when The sixth president, the son of the second, was defeated by someone with no connection to the American founding, Andrew Jackson. Since then, there's been an oscillation back and forth. You're quite right. In the 20th century, elites gained favor, partly because progressives sold the country on the idea that government was a science, that public administration, and here I will mention he who should not be mentioned, Woodrow Wilson, who gave us the science of administration, uh, and progressivism began its remarkably successful campaign to overthrow the founders. Woodrow Wilson was the first American president to criticize the founders, which he did not do peripherally, but root and branch. He said the entire structure, particularly the separation of power, is a bad idea because now we are a complicated nation and the more complicated we become, a nation united continent-wide by steel rails and copper wires, requires an interventionist, skillful, administrative government. That's the classic non sequitur of American politics, because the more complicated society gets, the less government knows about it and the less government can can uh, master the information that would be necessary to have the kind of centralized control they want. So elites emerged from the Second World War in, a, in, in good stead the McCloys and the Chip Bolans and and Atchison and all the rest. That was, I mean, the, the fall from grace began, of course, with the rest and the brightest, Halverson's stigmatizing of the people who took us into and barely out of Vietnam. And the subsequent wars have not done anything more for the elites. That's one problem. The other problem that you talk about, however, has nothing to do with it has to do with the American people have decided they're not reconciled to the kind of churning and dynamism of the American economy. Uh, the, the American nation is being urged to undergo a big flinch from dynamism. That's what populism is. My, my grandfather was a Lutheran minister in Donora, Pennsylvania, ground zero for the collapse of the uh, Monongahela Valley steel industry. It's not coming back. We need people to tell the people of Western Pennsylvania, it's not coming back. The American people need to be more mobile, more uh, more accepting of the creativity part of creative destruction. It is destruction. People need help to deal with that, but uh, that's not the elite's fault. That's the world's fault. And the American people have already made a choice. They have chosen dynamism because they have made enormous promises to themselves in the way of entitlement programs that are future calls on the productivity of the country that is not assured. So unless they they attend to the dynamism of our society with all the attendant frictions and dislocations Unless they do that, they will not have the money to keep the promises they've made to themselves. So they have made a choice. Now they have to, they've willed the end. Now they have to will the means to that end. And that requires accepting the churning of American life. But the, the churning is,
3: is the resistance to churning comes from both right and especially left. Uh, I uh, On the left, the left seems... Paradoxically, almost like English aristocrats, they use the word a low income person as if you are born to a station in life and that will always be the way you are. They put in place massive disincentives for anybody to ever get ahead and to churn and simply like the idea of that their view is we redistribute in a static society. It seems that the, I wanna follow with two questions that on what you said. You said something brilliant just now, elites who believe in the uh, point of the nation we still have elites. In fact, if anything, we have more elites than ever. We are a more stratified society. You know, Getting into Harvard, Yale, Stanford, despite how little they teach you here, still is the price of admission in our more and more credentialed society. The problem is that the elites are incompetent, uh, revealed ever more so, and they hate themselves and the country that they stand for. They're unwilling to go out in the world and say this is some in more than just superficial ways, that you know, our system is is a good system. And, and instead it's it's a it's this constant self-hatred. And and the idea that we need to get I, I used to be all for local, that you know the federal government is too big. But if you look at state and local government. And it's even more incompetent, even more corrupt, even more unable to make basic decisions than the federal government. In fact, it's usually—I came from Chicago. It was always the federal government who who put who discovered that our governors and aldermen were corrupt and put
2: them to j- in jail. Well, local local government was Madison's nightmare. He looked at the local governments, the state and local governments, who were passing debt relief bills and and, and, and all the rest, and he said, "We've got to get more power in the central government." where in an extensive republic, again, the saving multiplicity of factions will prevent some of this nonsense. Now, I agree with you. People who are sentimental about state and local government should go and look at it for a while.
1: <laughs> Can I come back to the question of how optimistic or pessimistic we should be about all this? Peter Turchin is a very interesting historian who has been applying a framework to American uh, politics that I find quite attractive in many ways. He argues that uh, we have uh, demographic problems that we would associate with a a declining or or decadent order, uh, that we have a fundamental problem uh, in income distribution, uh, that we have a really rather uh, unhealthy role played by the elites, uh, uh, as John characterized them, the people with the credentials from the top universities. And we have, uh, partly as a consequence of the distributional conflicts, uh, we have a, a public debt crisis that uh, may soon become unmanageable. And, and Turchin concludes that the US is really headed uh, for the abyss. Uh, and I, I, I sensed from your earlier answer to me, George, that you're you're more optimistic than that and that you think that uh, we can fix these problems, but I'm struggling to see how. How do you get the elites uh, to, to win themselves off the new ideology of wokeism, which is now the key to advancement at the elite universities? And in fact, if you don't subscribe to it, your prospects of admission into the commanding ha- heights of American society are more or less zero. How do we actually correct the direction of travel towards the abyss if the elites themselves think that the 1619 was the year of the founding, not 1776. I mean, that stuff is now an orthodoxy to which you have to subscribe at an elite university.
2: I understand that the elites, particularly in in academia, can reproduce themselves through the tenure system. I got that. Uh, Our hope lies I think in boredom, it is simply impossible to read the New York Times or the Washington Post without yawning over the, the relentless pounding away on race. The other day, the lead story in the New York Times sports section was on an African-American snowboarder, good for him, but that's not the point of a sports page to bring us up to date with diversity and snowboarding. Uh, and I, I do think boredom and ridiculousness, Dr. Seuss is a is a, is perhaps a straw in the wind here. This stuff will burn itself out. People will just get weary of it, but that won't solve the problem. The problem is on the one hand, we have a nation that is increasingly characterized by cognitive stratification. On the other hand, we have increasingly unintelligent intelligentsia that really does believe that Lincoln was a white supremacist and the Teddy Roosevelt and Ulysses Grant and all the rest should be canceled, all that stuff. They're soggy with presentism. And all of their judgments have one thing in common. They celebrate the person making the judgment as morally superior to Lincoln. So it's just an exercise in petty vanity over and over and over again. Uh, What we do about this, I'll give you a, a small, reason for optimism, that's the Federalist Society. About 40 years ago, people decided that the ideologically monochrome legal academy needed shaken up. So they started something at the Yale Law School that turns out to now remade the federal judiciary with a little help from elections. Uh, There are are attempts now to begin Federalist Society equivalents for the Humanities uh, in liberal arts uh, schools around the country. It's it's uh, difficult and it's slow, but isn't that what Max Weber said politics was? The slow boring of hard boards. Uh, so it, politics requires its own kind of patience. It paid off for the Federalist Society and it's it's not hopeless.
0: George, if you look at the details of HR1, you will find that there is a provision in it for our Supreme Court judicial ethics, which includes, we would assume, keeping conservative justices away from the likes of the Supreme Court. Uh, but, George, in the spirit of woke, we practice equality here at Goodfellows. And I'd like you to turn the tables on this conversation and maybe um, ask some of our colleagues here uh, what's on their minds, keeping in mind, George, that a few of our hobby horses here are China, conservatism, academia, and all things associated with the pandemic.
2: Yeah. Uh... For all the talk of discord in the United States, I'm much more concerned about a consensus which extends from Elizabeth Warren to Ted Cruz. And it is that uh, we should have a large omnipresent, omniprovident entitlement state and not pay for it. Everyone's agreed. The Democrats say, uh, praise and practice modern monetary theory. Republicans denounce and practice modern monetary theory. Uh, There's not, not a dime's worth of difference. Uh, between the two parties. I, I love the New York. the Wall Street Journal had a solemn front page story the other day. Democrats and Republicans are worrying how to pay for this. We're not gonna pay for this. We're not gonna pay for any of this stuff. We're gonna borrow it. There are, as I, if, I, if I've got my civics right, two ways to fund a government, uh, current taxes and future taxes. That's just the argument. I would like to hear uh, from the grumpy economist and others what am i wrong about the the fact that the, this consensus is uh, this permanent political incentive across the spectrum to run large deficits to give the american people a dollar's worth of government and charge them 80 cents for it pleasing absolutely everybody uh is is there is there reason for hope here or or indeed have we have we reached that magical point where the uh, everything is possible.
1: Well, this is one of my reasons for pessimism, but it, it was a question addressed to the grumpy economist, so I'll let him take it.
2: Well, I'm, I obviously think
3: this is a huge problem. Uh, now, we uh, I'll try to be optimistic first. America doesn't face any external threat. Uh, we are not right now in the middle of a war demanding huge, uh, uh, huge resources. And the pandemic, thanks to modern medicine, seems to be over. But we have an internal problem. Uh, uh, so, I mean, our, our fiscal problems, we could sit down, write the commission that solves the fiscal problem, and we'd be done in 10 minutes. Uh, and, and we could even bring a whole bunch of Democrats on board. It's, it's not a hard, objective problem. But uh, you're exactly right. Even the rhetoric coming out of Washington has ceased to be oh, this will cost our children. It's just, who who do we want to help? And they have gone far beyond even the economists who who write about this. It's just, we're borrowing money not to invest in anything. We're just borrowing money to send people checks. And worse, those checks come with disincentives. It's not just the spending. Uh, It's the disincentives that come with the programs That say, you get this check so long as you don't take a job. Well, then people don't take jobs. So uh, eventually it's got to blow up. Now I can go on that our financial markets have made it that this can go on for quite a while before it blows up, but it gets bigger and bigger. And then the moment comes, I see the moment coming in a future crisis. The crisis comes, a war comes, uh, Uncle Sam needs to borrow another 5 to $10 trillion and roll over a huge amount of debt. And all of a sudden, financial markets say no. And now, now you, you built this big firehouse everybody counts on a bailout that's our our system for dealing with crisis is bailout and now the firehouse is burned down. so uh, my fear is it doesn't in, in fact end predictably and slowly uh slowly rising interest rates slowly rising inflation. Uh, we are open to a debt crisis where you know the, the ancien regime fell in a debt crisis and uh, i think that doesn't come predictably it can go on for a long time before it hits
1: but when it hits you' you're really in huge trouble. And of course, George, you're right that Ricardian equivalence is real. You're either taxing today or taxing at some future date. The unpleasant fiscal arithmetic uh, of debt dynamics is well established by people who work in, in John's field. And as an historian, I can't give you an example of an empire or great power that has allowed its debt to rise beyond roughly 100% of gross domestic product and not had to make uh, one of a very small number of difficult choices. Uh, I mean, number one is you—you uh, you either have to uh, raise uh, the taxes significantly. Number two is you uh, try to inflate away the debt, and an option three is you default. Uh, and the idea that there is a free lunch that didn't previously exist in all the hundreds of years of financial history up until this point—I uh, must say, I don't—I don't find persuasive. But this is one of my reasons for pessimism, as I mentioned earlier. I don't actually see. Uh, a good way out of this, unless, and, and this is the key caveat, you get a burst of productivity growth of the sort that helped the United Kingdom after 1815. I mean, it, the UK after 1815 is kind of the exception. The US after World War II is the other exception. But are you telling me, and this is really another question for John, are you telling me that there's a productivity miracle around the corner that can save us? Particularly, There, there,
3: there could be. So. I didn't want to be and and on the grumpiness. No, the, the the way out of this is growth. You know, higher taxes is just going to give you eurosclerosis. It's it's not going to give you long-term growth. But the dynamism that George talked about, uh, let the creative destruction happen uh, and strong economic growth calls a lot of things, simple reforms to our entitlement programs. Uh, you know, let, let it grow at the CPI, not the not index to wages, that kind of thing. Our healthcare system is chaotic, easily reformed. So uh, going back to dynamic growth with solve things, and as after World War II, you know, people tell me, you know, we did this in World War II. Okay, let's do it the way we did in World War II. Return to steady primary. Even or surpluses, strong TFP-led growth in a deregulated economy and sensible social programs. Yeah, we could do it. Uh, that's that's kind of the. But that's not the direction we're heading.
2: Growth means churning. Churning means frictions. Friction means casualties. And even today, the the thinking, to the extent that there is any, on the on the right, done by the Josh Alleys and the Marco Rubios and the rest, is that capitalism of, for the needs reformed because. It is capitalism because it has this dynamism because it produces friction and, and so there's really no constituency uh, to uh, sell the American people that the gains the, the, the gains are worth the pains.
4: George, could you could you comment on this just from an international perspective? So it does it, it does, we are painting a very grim picture, but the the destructive part of creative destruction is, is actually even more problematic uh, across the European Union countries, for example. What China's been able to achieve economically looks to me to be quite artificial, at least from the outside, and, and propped up by us, I think, kind of stupidly, uh, with large influxes of, of cash and investments that allows China to continue to prioritize strategic payoff rather than economic payoff and not suffer the consequences for it. But So if you look internationally and and uh, and, and who's going to come out on top in terms of a surge of productivity that could get us out of this, Don't we look okay uh, from a relative perspective, especially when you look at the largest economies? Japan is another example where the demographics are not in Japan's favor, whereas they are in in, in our favor here uh, in the United States.
2: And they're really not in China's favor either because they've yet to pay the not the full price, but even a significant portion of the price for the one child policy. They're going to go gray before they grow rich, really rich in terms of per capita income. And at the same time, they're going to produce the most revolutionary force in history, a middle class. And the middle class is going to say, there are certain things we want and certain things we don't want, which is uh, teaching our children the, little, the, the, the thoughts of President Xi.
4: Xi Jinping's thoughts on socialism with China's characteristics. It's a great read. You know, I mean, <laughs> I'll
2: never know. <laughs> Compared to folkism, <laughs> which do you prefer?
4: He's taken it to an Orwellian extreme, George. I mean, it's just, know. you know, it's everything. The reversal of the truth is far beyond anything that, that Orwell even imagined.
2: I think China is is an overrated force right now. That uh, they, they're going to have problems of growth, problems of, of, uh, of uh, as I say, arrestive. Sort of elbow throwing middle class.
1: You, you've um, you've been uh, writing columns for a good many years, and uh, launched your career in the 1970s. So you had a a ringside seat for when Cold War One was going pretty badly, and then you also were able to observe how it turned out well in the 1980s. I've thought a lot recently and written a bit about the extent to which this is Cold War Two that we're in now. Give us the benefit of your experience. How like the first Cold War is the US-China relationship uh, currently and where do you think we're headed?
2: It's not very like it because China is, is woven, for better or for worse and its both, is woven into the world economic system in a way that can be if managed right. It, it, it tie them down like like uh, Gulliver among the Lilliputians with all kinds of entanglements that will be inhibiting to it. Russia, we were dealing with a, a, a nation, well, the famous phrase, upper volta with rockets. We were dealing with a hunter-gatherer economy. They sold vodka and fish eggs, and what else would you want to buy from them? Uh, which, in a way, made them more dangerous because they, they were not disciplined by... by uh, well, the, the, the worldwide equivalent of the bond vigilantes, uh, they, they were not disciplined by their entanglement with the real world. So I, 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 th- I think this is a very different thing than the, than the earlier Cold War.
1: But is that a good thing or a bad thing? I keep asking myself if, if that means we're more likely to lose this. Cold War, because that would seem one obvious inference. Economically, the Chinese are streets ahead of the Soviets. The Soviets never got close. The Chinese have every reason to expect to overtake the United States in terms of current dollar GDP within a decade. Uh, This makes me worried because it seems like uh, they're a much more formidable antagonist economically and technologically too, because we ultimately were able to uh, out-innovate the Soviets. Uh, by the looks of things at the cutting edge uh, of artificial intelligence, they're very much on our heels uh, in China today. So I'm, I'm asking another, are, are we uh, are we being pessimistic enough type question? They do seem like a more serious threat in the end than the Soviets ever were. Yes,
2: I think they're a threat though, however, primarily because they are I won't say insecure nationalism that they have, but uh, it's Leninism combined with grievance about the world giving them insufficient respect. And when they talk over there about the, the rejuvenation, I hear Germany awake. I mean, this this sense of we've been dormant, we've been passive, we're coming back, has an unhappy pedigree. Uh, that's what worries me more than their technological proficiency.
3: But isn't their their goal like all um, dictatorships, totalitarian states, is to survive? Their goal is not to take over the world. They're not. They're not sending tanks across Poland. Uh, they want to be a regional power, perhaps. But the point of the regional power is the Chinese Communist Party survives and stays in power, and that's about it. Um, and then, as you say, that that's one that is they recognize is in deep, deep danger. So I, I don't see, what does it mean to lose this Cold War? Now, I mean, lose this Cold War the US implodes in the sense that the US no longer has the confidence that we, we belong leading international um, international alliances is eminently possible given what our elites believe these days. But uh, I don't
2: see what lose the war means otherwise. Well, I'd like to hear General McMaster on what losing the world uh, the the war could occur in the South China Sea. I mean, if the waters through which forty percent of the world's trade passes comes under the control of a of a sufficiently ruthless Leninist regime, uh, they wouldn't need to send tanks anywhere.
4: Yeah, I would so, say I would say George, the way I look at it is the way that you you do uh, is is that they are driven mainly by fear, they being the Chinese Communist Party leadership, but but that fear is connected to aspiration. Aspiration associated with transcending what they view as the century of humiliation. So skipping over the the, the part of uh, of the self-inflicted devastation on the Chinese people by the Chinese Communist Party under under Mao Zedong, and then uh, but the, but then this aspiration is in Xi Jinping's words to take center stage in the world, and and its rightful place in the world is is, is a place in which China establishes. Exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific region, including the South China Sea, as you mentioned. It's a world in which its regional rival Japan is completely isolated, uh, and it's an area. It's a world in which the countries on the periphery of the Eurasian landmass have servile relationships with China, servile relationships that they are cultivating through various forms of economic aggression. But also, I would put out to John the largest peacetime military buildup in history increasing their their military budget 800 percent uh since since 1995. so i i don't think we, we we would want to 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 uh to cast the chinese communist party's ambitions as modest in, in any way and and for us to compete i think we have to re-enter arenas of competition that we long vacated george i would love to ask you this this question about how do you think about you're leveling, leveling the playing field with uh, with the Chinese Communist Party economically, and in particular, the party's ability to use its mercantilist model and, and its various forms of economic coercion to gain a lock on some critical supply chains. And I'm thinking now in, in connection with rare earth metals that are critical to uh, the Biden administration's and others' goals of shifting to renewable sources of energy. Are we at risk of trading you know, the old dependency on on petroleum imports for a new form of dependency on rare earth metal imports, for example. And and how do we reconcile really a conservative philosophy, for example, in terms of our free market economic system and and, and laissez-faire economics with potentially the need for some form of at least mild industrial policy to compensate for China's use of its mercantilist model at our expense
2: we've we we we've done industrial policy under duress before. The Manhattan Project was a prime example. Uh, the tremendous mobilization of American resources for the Second World War was industrial policy writ large. And maybe we need some of that uh, on a routine basis for certain crucial metals, certain crucial components, chips, and all the rest that needs to be thought about. And, and of course, we can, we can justify deviations from, from uh, laissez-faire orthodoxy. However, I still believe that what they call uh, market capitalism, whatever they call it over there now, won't work, it just won't over time. It, it is because, as has just been said in, in this discussion here, everything is sacrificed to the primacy of the party. The party's interests will inevitably conflict in huge and costly ways with economic efficiency and rationality. And uh, I count on that to uh, be a tremendous hindrance to them as they try to project power around the world. They're going to have to have a very different Navy if they're going to project it in a military way. They're going to have to have a very different economy if they're going to do it uh, with, uh, with economic power. I don't think the Belt and Road Initiative has been a stunning success.
3: So let, let me chime in here too, because this is a, uh, George, this is a fight we have just about every week. <laughs> but um, the, the contrast between the Chinese and the Soviets is very interesting. The, the, China, the amazing thing is the quality of stuff that comes out of China, that they were able not just to build tanks, but they are able to build high quality stuff and now moving into ever more high quality stuff. That's because it's coming out of the private part of their economy. A state-run system is incapable of producing quality stuff or cheap stuff. Even a good state-run system like the U.S., we built the Manhattan Project at immense cost, but we we can't build anything cheap and, and effective. That has to come from the private system. And the private innovation, uh, that just doesn't work in a state-run system. The idea that we're going to counter it with industrial policy, you brought up rare earths, which is, I'm glad you brought that up because a friend of mine works in this business. The U.S. actually mines rare earths. Uh, and uh, But try starting a mine in the US right now. In fact, right now our rare earth mines, we send them to China for processing. Why? Because that's a chemical intensive thing that good luck getting the, EP, the environmental sign offs to do rare earth processing. Something fairly easy to do in the US but we choose not to do it because it's so hard to get anything done in the US anymore. Uh, but industrial policy and, and, and you can do it cheaply and you can price.
4: do it cheaply in China, I would say, John, you do it cheaply in China because they're destroying their environment over there. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And <laughs> and I would say just quickly, also, now, let me just no you talk about like th- that they're, they're most innovative in, 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 with uh, with private companies. Walray is ostensibly a private company, but Walray has been able to dominate fifth generation, uh, fifth generation hardware markets internationally because it stole intellectual property from. US companies and enjoyed 120 billion dollars in subsidies from the from the Chinese government. So you know I, I, I don't know. I mean China, China is 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 using you know, these unfair economic trade and economic practices to gain strategic advantage you know, uh, over over us.
3: I'll just give you two two last little butts. The buddy I was talking about is started a company that now knows how to make high-strength magnets without rare earths. So <laughs> that, that's the kind of thing America does. And our industrial policy, you're about to see industrial policy on steroids because the uh, the Biden administration is heading down uh, if you want to see it, go go look between Fresno and Bakersfield, where they're put, <laughs> putting up what is supposed to be a high-speed train, and in fact is going to be uh, 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 modern ruins for us to imagine, because nothing's ever going to happen. Uh, our industrial policy is heading your way, and and we'll see just how effective it is is at beating China and uh, economically
1: doesn't this bring us back to where our conversation began that that there's been a degeneration of american institutions this is something that a lot of people have written about recently including our neighbor uh, francis fukuyama who's whose argument is that the US state has simply lost its capacity. What it had in the 1940s, when the Manhattan Project happened, does no longer exist. Uh, In fact, the administrative state, which really had its origins back in the 70s and 80s, is is now something which subtracts value. I rather like my friend Harold James's recent essay in which he asked whether we were in the late Soviet period of American history. Uh, I wonder, George, what does a conservative have to say to those who emphasized the decay of institutions. And can that decay be reversed? I mean, the Federalist Society is a wonderful thing, but I struggle to see anything like that changing the direction of, of decay and degeneration in the institutions of government itself, which seemed to me to be the really key problem that the United States grapples with.
2: But the institutions are decaying because they won't do the one job they have. Uh, John has written about the, how the Federal Reserve Board is becoming a, an all-purpose fourth branch of government. Uh, not because it's distinguished itself so well in managing the economy, which if you listen to its rhetoric, it thinks it really does. Uh, but be, Congress has, been, uh, has become an entirely now performative institution, uh, 435, 535 uh, individual political entrepreneurs, shedding power as fast as they can do it in the most unseemly way to, to the swollen executive. Uh, again, if what we need to do is call our institutions back to what is recognizably their mission. It's not glamorous in some cases like writing budgets, which, the, which Congress can't do anymore. But if we can, if we can just begin to insist on, on certain boundaries for institutions, from the Fed to the Congress to the executive, judiciary, all the rest, we would. That would be a, a long, a long step forward. But how you, how you start? Slowly.
1: I love that idea of a kind of campaign to strip the government back to its bare essentials. Philip Howard has written recently very well about the excesses of the regulatory state, which by the way, the pandemic laid bare most hideously. But I I struggle to see how this becomes viable politics uh, on the left or on the right. And and this brings us back to the two-party system uh, made in Britain, but no longer actually existing in Britain. Is there any way that your ideas, which I respect hugely, the ideas of of true conservatism can be politically viable in the two party system we have today? And if not, is it time for a, a new party somewhere in the middle ground, uh, a liberal conservative party that could articulate the very ideas we've been discussing on this show?
3: Let me suggest some of that in, in the direction just to make it particular. Uh, we're talking about infrastructure now. And, and Neil wrote well about the quality of people who worked in the Eisenhower era. You look around California, we desperately need the infrastructure. We need dams because we don't have any water. We need someone to go clear out the firewood so it stops burning every summer. Uh, we need freeways. Uh, we need power. The power goes out now. It's like Beirut uh, in, in the summertime. Basic, competent government infrastructure. Now, is there not uh, some demand? Does somebody at some point notice that given lots of money, the state of California wastes it on all sorts of projects other than these sort of obvious basic government competence things. Uh, is that not an, a political opening, perhaps?
2: Well, I, I don't want, I've got no particular brief for Governor Whitman of Michigan, but she got elected. Her campaign slogan was, fix the damn roads. And people <laughs> said, oh, I, I, I can relate <laughs> to that. And, and uh, so I think there is a constituency out there for a government more modest, but actually filling the potholes. Uh, the problem is that we d- both parties now are governed by this. The first rule of economics is scarcity is real. The first rule of politics is ignore the first rule of economics. <laughs> the, So you have no constituency for realism. Now, that's what conservatism is for. Conservatives say to the country, we're not cuddly, we're not particularly nice, but we know what we're talking about. And there will come a time when people get tired of performative politics and want something like... Fixing the damn roads. Now, the problem is that the conservative, the Republican Party, you know, I know we don't want to get off on that. We can get off on that if you, if
4: you, want, if yeah, you want. Yeah, yeah, watch. We, we have We've, read, we've read everything you've written about it. So The
2: intellectual, the adventurous Republicans right now are semi industrial policy uh, uh, critics of capitalism. They just are
3: and and um keep the status quo i mean a lot of what government does always is to keep the old rents going and to stop dynamism uh in order to keep you know keep the taxi companies going instead of letting uber in as the instinct elizabeth
2: Elizabeth warren has a firm grip on half of a point the point is there's something wrong when the washington dc area which has no natural resources which makes nothing but rules and laws and trouble has Five of the ten richest counties in the United States by per capita income. Why is that? Because government sloshes trillions of dollars through itself, and a lot of it sticks. Because as government becomes bigger, it becomes more opaque, and to to work its wheels and, and gears and pulleys requires groups that are intense, compact, confident, articulate, and well lawyered which is why the larger the government gets, the more interventionist it gets, the more inevitably it distributes wealth upwards.
0: George, I'd like to take your concept of realism and apply it to something that you've written passionately about, and that's immigration. As we talk about immigration, new blood, we have someone in this conversation who's who's an immigrant, a new citizen. George, given the lineup in Washington, uh, how can Washington actually do immigration? What is the George Will solution for immigration?
2: Uh, It is to devise a policy that
0: uh,
2: brings in what we need, lots of immigrants. We need them as much as they need us. We need to tailor the admission requirements to the needs of the economy. But that doesn't mean just send us your PhDs. We need lots of people who will, I mean, if Trump was going to build his border wall, it was going to be built with illegal immigrants. Uh, because they're the ones who are here and know how to do construction and are willing to do construction. If you read the social security trustees report, I mean, they say year after year, we need more immigrants, more than are legally permitted to replenish the workforce for an aging population as the boomers retire. We have to convince the American people that their entitlement system, what they really care about, uh, depends on immigration which brings economic vitality
4: it just does. And by the way George, I would say that those who understand the great gift of our republic better than anybody are exactly. immigrants they know because why I'm they here. yeah and I, you know I, and I, I agree this is one of the biggest missed opportunities. We keep talking about who we don't want in this country. we should talk more about who we need uh, in this country is an
2: inherently entrepreneurial act. It is risk-taking, it's uprooting yourself, and it's bringing all that you've got in resources, material and moral, to a new new arena. If that isn't the kind of entrepreneurial energy the country needs at all times, I don't know what is.
3: The problem is our fellow citizens believe the lump of labor fallacy. There are exactly Mm -hmm. 170 million jobs in the US, period, and every immigrant who comes in and does anything takes a job away from an American, as opposed to the actual fact, which is what we want is people who will come, start businesses, employ other people, grow the economy, pay taxes. <laughs> exactly what they want to do. We should welcome people who want to come in and work in the U.S. And of course,
4: you know, this is not unprecedented in American history either, John. Right? So we've we've seen this before. It's right in
3: the Declaration of Independence. King George stopped people from immigrating to these shores. I'm going to quote it wrong, but uh, <laughs> we're doing... Well, exactly- I'm thinking of the
4: Know Nothing Party as well, you know, in the, in,
1: in the uh, late 19th century. This is all very embarrassing for uh, an immigrant to hear, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to control my my blushes. I do think it, it does help to come from outside to appreciate the United States, uh, to appreciate the original design. Uh, And that's partly because if you want to become a citizen, you actually have to study it to pass the exam. I just think we should make the exam mandatory for all citizens at some point. Uh, in high school. Uh, That doesn't seem to happen anymore. And I I do think the crisis that the United States faces in the coming years is not really China. It's the crisis from within that is really rooted in the failure of the education system Mm -hmm. to convey to each successive generation of, of Americans how lucky they are and what it is they have to preserve. George, what should they read? Is it still the case that apart from you, a Frenchman understood uh, the United States best. I'm thinking of Tocqueville, of course, whose democracy in America remains for me the most insightful account of what differentiated American democracy from past experiments uh, with uh, democracy, aside from Tocqueville.
2: Yeah, well, they should read uh, They should read Federalist 10 and 51. and uh, 70 they should read... Uh, uh, Lincoln's speeches, they should read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, but they should read about Lincoln most of all. I mean, I grew up in central Illinois, Lincoln country, um, in Champaign County. My father taught at the University of Illinois, and according to local lore, it was in the Champaign County courthouse that Lincoln heard in 1854 that his rival Stephen A. Douglas had passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And that Lincoln's recoil against that began his ascent to greatness. Uh, the problem was what to do about the question of the expansion of slavery into the territory. Stephen A. Douglas said, vote on it, popular sovereignty. Vote it up, vote it down, matter of indifference. What matters is majority rule because that's what America is about. And Lincoln said, no. He said, America is not, not about majority rule. It's about liberty, which we hope democracy properly channeled and refined will preserve Uh, that's the kind of argument the kind of dramatic moral questions that can energize young students and get them to think about their country but we have to teach history as what it is a great moral drama particularly in the united states
1: instead we have a movement that actually leads to the statues of lincoln being toppled that is the challenge we face
2: Although they
3: they uh, they are treating it as a big moral drama, just in a different sense of the word of moral drama from what I think that uh, George had in mind.
1: They even renamed schools in San Francisco named after Abraham Lincoln. That is how profound the self hatred is in this country's educational system. And you know, I, I just I think it goes back to ignorance,
4: right? You can use ignorance, obviously, or, or you know, ignorance uh, lends itself toward you know, fostering hatred. Uh, and then, and then, hatred is used to justify violence. And, and I'm worried about these. You know, obviously, the, this orthodoxy uh, that has made really victimhood the new, the new heroism, uh, and that, and that, that, that uh, defines people by their sub identities rather than their character. And, and, and you know, you can't even have this conversation uh, in in most places without somebody trying to shout you down uh, and and to to sort of label you. Uh, as a racist, by because you said that we ought to aspire to be colorblind, right? so it's it's really um, you know, it, it's really a detestable situation. I, I I believe, George, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. That there is this interaction between you know identity politics and critical race theory, and you know if you want to call it white supremacy or bigotry and racism and so forth, they draw strength from one another. And I believe essentially they're creating centripetal forces that are, that are spitting us apart from one another, diminishing our confidence in our, in our common identity, as well as in our democratic principles and institutions and processes.
2: I think that's, that's their aspiration, but I don't think they're going to, because I think the country's race relations are actually remarkably good. I, I'm old enough to remember segregated buses and theaters and things. You want to know how far we've come? Look at an SEC football game. Alabama against Mississippi, the African-American referee is bossing everyone around. Uh, That's not a racist country. That's not a racist region of the country. It's just not the case. I think our, our race relations are much healthier than this tiny sliver of ignorant intelligentsia would have us believe. And I do think they're boring, and I do think they are given to excess. And Either excess or boredom is going to kill him, and the combination's deadly.
0: So, George, part of the brilliance of the great sport of baseball is it does not adhere to a clock. Football does, baseball does not, but fellows does go by a clock, and the clock is telling us that it's time to go. Uh, but I would be remiss to point out that you have a landmark birthday approaching in the first week of May if the Internet's right, and the Internet's never wrong. We know it's not <laughs> right. It's May the 4th, which also is the day that doom is coming out. See, Neil, everything ties together on this show. Um, it's also the same day that the Cubs are at home in Wrigley Field to the Dodgers, uh, George. Great experiment of baseball inequity, if there ever was one. Um, I'm curious as to your reflections as you approach this birthday. Uh, keeping in mind here at the Hoover Institution, we just lost the great George Schultz, Princeton class of 1942, who lived for 100 very productive years. What What are your thoughts at this point, George?
2: My thoughts are that uh, the future is happily unknowable, that the fatal conceit, to use Mr. Hayek's phrase, is always that we know more than we know. Uh Let me tell you a story we can conclude with perhaps. In my second year at Oxford, Isaac Deutscher published, this was 1964, the third and final volume of his worshipful biography of Trotsky. And the Oxford Marxist Society said, we're gonna have a tea for you, for Deutscher. And so they'd be my kind of people. I trotted around to, to see this. And he, Deutscher gave some remarks in the course of which he said of Trotsky, proof of Trotsky's farsightedness is that none of his predictions have come true yet. Now, that's the mentality of, of so many people uh, in, in politics. The fact is contingency is king. And uh, as long as contingency
0: is is a fact, there's hope. Amen. Amen. Well, George, you have a book coming out in December. Promise you'll come back on the show and talk about it. Well, it's a collection of stuff. But uh, yeah, sure. I'll come back anytime. This is fun. Thank you. We enjoyed it very much. That's it for this episode of Goodfellows. We'll be back a week from now with a new topic and a new conversation. On the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Carkin, our very special guest today, George Will. We wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.